What changed my life was learning my own history. We do have the answers. We have the answers by Picani, for Picani, right at home. We just want to be able to provide a means for people to reacculturate with their DNA with the last 10,000 years that's flowing through their body was the, the ancestral memory. So I think there's a lot of drivers in this. One of the main ones is empowerment and encouragement within our youth and our generations ahead that they would have that strength, that they would know that they could do these things. Welcome to the Stories for Action podcast, the Life in the Land series, where we hear from folks that live and work within the landscapes of Montana, gaining perspectives that can be applied globally on the realistic challenges and what is needed to move forward in a positive relationship with the land and one another in an ever-changing world. These are the interviews from the film series, Life in the Land, in their entirety. I'm your host, Laura Tomov. Today, we're speaking with Kim Paul, who is the founder and executive director of Pecani Lodge Health Institute, or PLHI. PLHI is a community-driven organization that integrates traditional life ways to create resiliency for the people and biosystems of the Blackfeet Nation in Northwest Montana. They use holistic approaches and the guidance of traditional life ways to meet community-led and community-focused needs. They lead programs on the ground and conduct research integrating both Western and Indigenous research methodologies. Their work encompasses climate adaptation, job and career creation, opioid misuse prevention, regenerative grazing, and youth outdoor programs. Recognizing the interconnectedness of community well-being with the health of the ecosystem that they're a part of, and the connection to traditional lifeways. Producer Leilani Upham and I spoke with Kim at her home, and it is Leilani who you will hear speaking with Kim. Kim begins by sharing her own connection to the land in her upbringing and connecting it to today. Misa Misa Ipiaki, longtime charging woman. And my other name is Kimberly Paul. As a teenager, young adult, times were quite a bit different, you know, during the 60s and 70s and a lot of freedoms. We rode our horses into camp. We rode our, you know, horses around town all the time. We were pretty much out in the country, um, except during Indian days and, and uh, you know, reasons to come to town, groceries, definitely in the summer. And then in the winter, um, just lived on Moxon Flat back behind the um, high school as a blessing with my aunt and my cousins. And during those days, there, there had already been that um, severing of that relationship with the land that existed for you know, 10,000 generations. And um, during the, I guess, 2030s, 40s, 50s, the Burke Act, the Dawes Act, the disassociation from the land, the individual allotments that took us from being um, more community-minded to individualistic, um, we were already into that by those 60s and 70s. But very much, um, we still were connected. We were still horseback all the time. We were still, you know, a part of the land and it just was a part of us. and. It never seemed like it would ever be any way different through these generations than we've seen it change, you know, with technology. And I used to talk to my grandma about all the changes she saw um, in the world during her lifetime to go from uh, oil lamps 
you know, wood stoves um, to a radio and then there was TV and then there were planes and then there were jet planes and cars and, you know, because they came to town in a buggy, you know, from they either came horseback or they came to town from Two Medicine in a buckboard and that it would take them all day to get to town and then it would, they'd get their groceries for the month and uh, then they'd spend the night and they would uh, take that buckboard back out to Two Medicine and it takes us, you know, 10 minutes to drive out there now and it took them all day. And so there really was a, a huge change in her lifetime and then you think about our lifetimes and the, the changes that we've seen and I see where, um, you know, technology has so many vast and important advantages but it's also um, has succeeded in disassociating our youth and our children and our young adults from the land. So just uh, making a big push right now to find reasons to get out on the land, to create a all seasons um, program that provides a format or a platform for folks in the communities, our multiple eight, nine communities that we have within the Blackfeet Nation to uh, get out on the land and try something new. Right now, today, while we're speaking, we have a crew out at Star School and they just went door to door and knocked on doors and asking folks if they wanted to come cross-country skiing with us and so they're out there cross-country skiing where they're close to home you know they have the the security of their parents being right there and then they have our crew out there teaching them how to cross-country skiing and try something new and it's just pretty amazing so we will continue on this front just with this one project trying to um, figure out ways to assist people in that reconnection to the land in summer spring winter and fall so to incorporate, you know, picking berries and incorporate some of our noppy stories and our older ways, you know, some songs, the berry song with our ceremonies, just so that we're continually building and sharing with our youth and our young adults and um, helping them with their identity so that they don't have to absorb the identity of um, a different culture or whatever the, the cool thing is in the moment. They can still be cool, but still be cunning, you know, so. Could you talk about why it's so important to get our community out connecting to the land the way your your um, program is doing why is it important and how have you seen a difference so far in our community i i think it's important because um through the generations that i've been alive and i can only speak from my own perspective but from from my view um there's been a pretty solid division between the haves and the have-nots. The ones that have land, have ranches, have you know nice big trucks and, and um, horse trailers and everything so that they could provide this beautiful lifestyle for their children and their grandchildren. And then we have folks who um, have been in the same duplex, you know, one or two families for the last three generations. And you know, there's seven or eight of them living in a one bedroom duplex. And maybe they don't have the opportunity or the ability or a good running car or the gas money to get out on the land. and um, even still have the passion and the heart, you know, to, to be doing these things, but maybe not the resources. We just want to be able to provide a means for people to just re, re-acculturate with their DNA, with the last 10,000 years that's flowing through their body with their grandmothers and their grandfathers, the, the ancestral memory, of, you know. Just in my generation, like when I was younger, everybody cut dry meat. You know, and, and now not as many, probably I can't, you know, put a number on it, but maybe 50% of the people, you know, cut dry meat or 20% or so there's all these really valuable um, 
and I believe necessary skills that go along with that connection to the land. Knowing what molin is and what the, the traditional name is for it to heal our own lungs. You know, we're under this assault globally from, from COVID, but we as indigenous people, as the first people of this nation, we have these tools, we have these skills. They've been pushed away from us, you know, through that assimilation, all those assimilation policies and the loss of our ini. And, um, and I think that that real, uh, the biggest driving force is so that the ones who um, are not as blessed to get to live out on the land, the ones in town that did have the same opportunities as others, to know when those puffballs come out, to see those crocuses, you know, to know that spring's almost here, to know where the springs, the underground springs are for fresh water if our water system is um, interrupted. What if our food system is interrupted? I mean, the largest percentage of our people care for themselves and provide for themselves. And, but there's some kids maybe in town that might haven't had the opportunity to go hunt with anybody. Or, so we're trying to figure out you know, what we can do um, to teach those specific hunting skills, those gathering skills. Of how do you dry those berries? How do you cut that dry meat? How do you make mukok and, you know, the dried um, meat mixed with dried berries and fat and, you know, those really dense caloric ways of keeping energy in our system, you know, in the winter. And what if uh, this continues? And what if our food supply chains are cut? Are our people going to be able to provide for themselves still, you know? And so I think there's a lot of drivers in this and a lot of importance. One of the main ones is, is empowerment and encouragement within our youth and our uh, generations ahead that they would have that strength that they would know that they could do these things. Because if you're not reliant on a grocery store, I mean, that's a huge, that's a huge value, right? And if you are not afraid to go outside in the middle of winter, you know, instead of connected to that phone or that TV or that computer, but you know how to stay warm, how to keep your body heat, you know, I think they're survival skills, but I don't know, to me, they're victory skills. So it's like counting coup back on the last three or four generations of having it pushed away from our day-to-day -day life. Kim's path to her current work was not easy. Even just hearing a brief overview on it put me in awe with respect. Kim dropped out of school in the ninth grade, and after working labor jobs for 28 years, she was determined to go back to school. She attended Blackfeet Community College, then the University of Montana, and earned undergraduate degrees in pre-med and research psychology, master's degrees in environmental chemistry and biomedical science, and completed interdisciplinary work in biochemistry, biomedical science, and community and public health. Kim speaks about her path that led to forming the Pecani Lodge Health Institute and why it was so evident to embed this holistic approach. In most ways, I feel like Creator leads all this work, that Creator had that plan before I ever even entered school. You know, my uncle's like, my girl, you need to go to school. You need to become a doctor. You could just talk to those doctors really good. And so uh, when I finally was able to, after my last child graduated, um, that was the plan was medicine, right? So two years really strong, pre-med, 4.0, blah, blah, blah. And, um, but during that time, I started thinking about the high, the huge amount of cancer that we have up here. And I was thinking about my grandma's old stories about my girl, you go get us some bear grass, but don't you go up on divide. There's something really bad buried up there. Okay, Graham, okay, you know, we'll get you some bear grass. And she used to put it in these mason jars and put food coloring in each different jar and the bear grass would absorb the colors. And it was really beautiful. And 
So I'm down there applying to medical school, but at the same time, I was starting out this research project because I wanted to know why so much cancer? What can I do to you know, positively affect those cancer numbers, drive them down? Is there anything that I can do as an individual? I can't change the system. I can't change IHS, or can I? You know, but at this point, why? What are the reasons for the cancer? Is it environmental? Is it metabolic? Like, what are these reasons? And so I started working in that area, and I also finished up a master's in environmental chemistry. And so then by the time I finished my master's and I had a couple of invitations for, I'd made it through the, you know, the primary um, rounds of, of med school applications in seven schools and then um, the secondary and the tertiary. And then I got invited for interviews at Yale and Loma Linda. And I was, I was raring to go still, but I hadn't received any answers on the cancer. So I, I wanted to continue working on that. So Creator built my education with the pre-medicine, all of the, everything from the atomic metabolic level all the way up to, you know, tissues and organ systems, etc. Then he added environmental chemistry onto it because he brought that, the way I believe, he brought that thought into my heart. You have to help. You have to serve. You have to, you know, serve in a way that helps to save lives or, you know, they're, they're just, he connected these dots for me. And so then, um, I was so involved with that project with 68 sample sites and finding that Hanford and um, this subcontractor for the Atomic Energy Commission had a proposal to our tribe to bury not less than 50,000 gallons of irradiated wastewater um, here within our lands, all the way from eastern Washington. And so then there was this huge exposure of all of these things that had happened in the past in 1960 and, you know, where were they buried? Where's the highest cancer hotspots? So I believe Creator led me through that to really get a handle on research. And then my first grandchild was born and I just couldn't leave to go away to medical school. There was no way I could leave my daughter and my granddaughter to go away to medical school. I just couldn't. So anyway, Creator prepared me. I finished off um, that PhD in biomedical science and community and public health. So he started himself at the metabolic level and brought it all the way out to the community system. And so when, um, during that time, I was asked to assist in the writing of the climate adaptation plan for the tribe. And so he expanded it out further. And these were things that I was doing um, to keep my connection to home as well as to be the best steward of the education he had given me. I'd waited 50 years to get to go to school. What was I going to do with it? Just serve myself or was I going to serve our people? And so um, it moved into that climate adaptation plan which then moved into um, the collaboration to assist with helping write the Agricultural Resource Management Plan. And so through these things, I got to just really begin collaborating with some of the most wonderful, hardworking people in our community. You know, they moved my heart, they moved my spirit, and, and under different paradigms, like under the tribal system or the, you know, this program system or this federal agency system or this state agency system, I knew that, um, that it would be hard to really move forward and get as much work done as I felt we could do as people, as Siksikete um, Satapi, that we as a confederacy could do without these paradigms where you had to go through all of these different steps to get from A to Z, where A to B, whereas if I created Pikani Lodge Health Institute that we could kind of leave some of those extraneous steps behind, but really do some good work. I think it was, it was a combination of, uh, of knowing that everything was interconnected. You couldn't just work on opioids 
if you don't work on the reasons behind it and the, the policies, the legislation, the, you know, the way that we're targeted. You can't work on regenerative grazing if you don't assist producers with more profitability because they're, they're struggling to keep their land, they're struggling to make the tiniest amount of profit because the, the burden of all the overhead falls on them as opposed to the cattle buyer who just swoops in and makes the huge amount of profit. So in order for producers to be more profitable, we had to do the background work on, on other things. And in order to have positive impact you know, on addiction, then we had to look at why do we have such high rates of, of addiction? And, and so then looking back into generational you know, what were the pressures on us generationally? Why, why were we trained to use this as a way of coping as opposed to getting out on the land? And so that's how the getting out on the land um, things came about. I think creators had these plans in place all along. Well, I know he has, and we just are, are blessed to get to walk the steps of it. So it was no beautiful insight of my own. It was more like he opened certain doors and closed other ones. So then with knowing that none of these things really mean anything if you can't feed your kids, if you can't keep them in a warm house, um, provide those most basic essentials. Who cares about regenerative grazing if your baby's you know, sick and, and sick all the time because they're not getting enough nutrition? And so then my priority became jobs. If we can combine uh, the community's needs with proposals and programs that are available for funding that directly meet the community's needs along with creating jobs, then it's, it's like a win-win-win-win-win-win-win situation. And, but it's been Creator's Plan all along. Just honored to be a part of it, you know. The synchronicity of the way our projects or our work comes about has been pretty, um, uh, pretty amazing to each one of us that are a member of the team. Just, um, you know, having my my dear cousin come down to me uh, when I was in school and say, hey, can you write this feasibility study for a processing plant? And, you know, let's get this, this processing plant started so that we can increase profitability for our producers because ag is 70% of our economic, you know, situation here within the Blackfeet Nation. And in right, I'd never written a feasibility study before. I isolated and amplify, amplify DNA. I don't, <laughs> I don't know anything about it. It took me a few weeks, but we got it rolling. And, and so that interconnectedness with that, for me, was really about creating the jobs. Creating the jobs, increasing profitability for producers, and then the biggest, uh, I think, impact for community-wide, not just producers or not just those you know, people that would get these jobs, would be bringing much more healthy foods into our own food system, that we would become more self-reliant. So always underneath and undergirding is this self-reliance, this... Um, you know, like not saying reservation. I just refuse to say that oppressive word anymore. We're sovereign. This is a Blackfeet nation, you know, and I, I really um, uh, beseech anyone that I come in contact with that I hear, you know, because we all say it, right? And we say res, and that's, you know, just how we talk. But when it's other people, um, you know, on a different stage and they're, yeah, up on the Blackfeet reservation and this and that, and it's like, no, 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 it's the Blackfeet nation. It's, we're a sovereign nation within a nation. Anyway, so just making those stands about things like that, I think, teaches each one of us to, to um, be more empowered and to be built up a little bit stronger. Kim elaborates on this interconnectedness by sharing how she has witnessed the benefits of connecting the land and traditional life ways to the health of the people within the community. 
And just a warning, there's a mention of suicide in this segment, in the context of suicide prevention. If you'd like to skip over this point, it comes from minute 26 to minute 28. I can tell you that the first project that I ever wrote, um, and we didn't have PLHI quite together at the time, and so I went before the council and they gave me permission to write it under the tribe. And it was, um, it addresses so many pieces of our, our past, our history. So I know that when I went um, to school, when I went down to BCC and was so blessed to be in a land issues class with Terry Tatsy and, you know, these other history classes with uh, Leah Whitford and, you know, just to visit with Helen um, Auger and Melissa Weatherwax and just talking with folks, learning our language, learning more of our language. What it did was I, walk, I used to walk with my head down and I used to be so embarrassed of who I was, of um, not having enough pigment in my skin, of um, just the, the atrocities that had taken place. But I bought into it, right? So I was shamed. I, was, um, I wouldn't really uh, stand up as much for myself. I'd stand up for anybody else but not as much for myself. And, and I just, my eyes were always on the floor. And I went in there and I learned that, wait a second, you know, we went from this beautiful thriving culture of 10,000 years to just in the last hundred years, you know, throw the Burke Act in, make our, our spiritual values illegal, you know, remove us from our community um, togetherness and put us on these individual pieces of land, take away our names and, and attach names to it, like our last name is now Paul. And, you know, because then when all of the Homestead Act and all of the people that were still pushing in and taking the land, when their names were on these rolls, they didn't stand out so much if they took our, our Picani names away from us. And when I was learning all these pieces, it was like, all of a sudden I understood why my grandpa was on the streets for 20 years. All of a sudden, you know, there was no jobs. All this stuff had happened in their lifetime, right? We were reaping the beautiful things, all the strengths that, that had helped them persevere through all of that, but they lived it, you know? And the Relocation Act that, that moved my grandparents away from here to Seattle and then left them three or four days later without a job and five kids and no money to get back. And, you know, the things that they had to do to, to be able to support them. And, a, and it was this perfect system because all their kids were in high school, they all married out. You know, so it reduced the blood quantum. So I didn't have to feel bad anymore about, you know, I was enrolled, but I, about looking this way when it was the government that did that to my family. You know, it wasn't their fault. It wasn't my fault. And so, yes, all of a sudden, just with this, this knowledge, I understood who I was and who we are as a people. It was just so empowering. Education at BCC is just so empowering. It's such a stepping stone. And so... Um, through this education and then the stuff down at UM and, and I came home to write my first program that I wanted really to be effective. To me, what changed my life was learning my own history. And so um, we created this program that was a traditional camp over four days and it really was about um, suicide prevention at the time. And so we pulled together our different bundle carriers. They were they blessed us with coming and being a part of it. Our pipe carriers, our our um, Okanis, our people who have sat holy, you know, in the Okan, our medicine lodge people, our Sundance people, and and we just had so many people. And and we were blessed by the Blackfeet Indian Land Trust to be able to use 
the yellow bird woman, Utukui Biksiaki, the sanctuary out there um, that was, again, a blessing from Eloise Cabell. Um, and so we put our lodges up out there and we just started inviting people to come, people from treatment center, people from school, just in the, we were in the schools, we were in the grocery store, we were just inviting anybody to come out to this traditional camp, right, that, that everyone understands deep in their DNA, but not everyone gets a chance to make their own protection or to learn about these smudges or um, why we use this smudge with the beaver bundle in the winter and why we use this smudge in the summer and there was a lot of people that hadn't even gotten their Indian names yet. And um, so we did four days of, you know, doing these walks and identifying our teas, our natural teas and, and our, um, uh, like the wild potato and the wild onion and things that, that people wouldn't have otherwise gotten to learn just because of that severing. Like in my family alone, I had three grandmothers, three generations that were in Carlisle in the mission, you know, like you, were, you weren't allowed to have these knowledges, you know, if you spoke uh, Pekani, it was, it was beaten out of you, like you couldn't even, like my grandma, as much as she defended the mission and all of the things that she learned there, she also wasn't even allowed to teach her little sister how to tie her own shoes or to help her make her bed or to speak to her brothers for the 16 years that she was in there. She couldn't even speak to her own brothers across the way. She wasn't allowed to speak to them. You know, and, and so there are all these things that, that really severed our relationship to the land, severed our relationship to our culture. The culture was made illegal, so people were trying so hard just to fit in and not be treated less than. And so we wanted to count coup back for all those lost years, and so we created these camps. During our first camp, we had, a, I don't know, maybe over the course of the four days, 100, if even that, 80 people that came and some came one day, some came every day. And we had people come from the treatment center. We had, it was really nice. And we ate all traditional foods. Um, and we had all this dry meat that we, you know, fed everybody. And we had picked berries the summer before and we dried berries, we had frozen berries, we had berry soup. We just, we really um, tried to keep it as traditional as possible. But the story that I tell um, that stands out so much and that really encompasses every piece of why we keep doing what we do is, um, a young mother came with her daughter, and I think she was about 15 at the time, and her friends had told their mother that um, she was texting them about taking her life, that she had a plan, that she was ready to roll with it um, to, to take her life. And her mother heard about this camp out there, and so she brought her out there. And during those four days, she stayed, and she came back, and she came back. And you know how teenagers are. They don't want to, you know, look um, like they don't know anything, or they don't want to... Um, not fit in or they don't want to stand out or you know just for a mother to you know what a brave thing her mother did and then what a brave thing for that young girl to do to be there and to eat these foods and to learn who she is and it didn't matter if she had green eyes or hazel eyes or blue eyes or it didn't matter she was still pecani she was born here raised here you know and and so uh during that time she got her indian name she made her own protection pouch she learned about the smudges she learned about our medicines are teas, she learned about ceremonies, she learned so many different things about just being Pekani. And that last day when she got her name and she was pushed off into the world with this new, new name, new identity, new person, um, she hugged her mom and she said, Mom, I will never, ever, ever consider that ever again. I know who I am now, right? So she got this start into the world that, um, 
we had no idea what was going to happen. I mean, we all embrace that, right? We embrace these pieces of our identity as we're growing, but they're such a crucial age with kids when they're, you know, in their teens. And we had ha been having so many suicides at that point. And her mom, I ran into her at the grocery store a couple months later, and she just grabbed me and hugged me and sobbed. She's like, I have my daughter back. I have my daughter back. I'll never, never, ever lose her now. She's never going to even think about those things. But you know, that hopelessness and those avenues, they're just such a huge, uh, unchangeable response to, you know, being bullied or being teased or, you know, just um, not seeing a light at the end of the tunnel. And if some little something like uh, a traditional camp where, you know, you get to sleep in a lodge and you get to eat some different food and you get to just be loved on is going to change someone's life forever, then we just have to keep doing it, right? We don't understand the, the puzzle pieces that come together. We can guess at some of them, but um, for people to be able to come together and tell their stories and to just love on each other, I think is um, so powerful. And you know, that's what we do to our ceremonies too. We just, we love on each other and we learn our old songs and we're tied then back to our grandmothers and our grandfathers, you know, for thousands of generations. And although that's not a PLHI project, it's something that um, really taught us this lesson and under the blessings of our council that let us do it under the tribe, it taught us that lesson that we do have the answers. We have the answers right here. We have the answers by Pikani, for Pikani, right here, right at home. And those answers were built on our grandparents' tears and our grandparents' blood and the loss that they experienced over those generations. And the only way that, um, you know, I'm not going to hand somebody a Valium. I'm not going to hand them a suboxone i'm not gonna here's your cure you know like no come to our ceremony come eat this food come sit by this grandma come sit by this auntie you know let's go for a walk like those are those are our answers and so um another thing that's not fair or politically correct to say so we put in a lot of proposals just to try keep funding that try to keep because that that little camp made like 27 jobs you know people like we had people putting up the camp we had people taking down the camp we had people attending to people getting them tea and coffee we had four or five people working with you know this level of age group youth and we had four you know like there was just a lot of jobs that were created so a lot of people were able to pay their electric bill or you know there was just so many pieces to it and if I could only do that under PLHI that's what we would do every day all year I think just the telling of the story really provides that powerful impact as to why we have to build in our culture and just try igakimat, right? Some people say that's like try unto death. Igakimat is not just try hard, but it's try unto death. Like you just have to, to try so hard until you're not in this physical world anymore. To me, that means trying hard for everyone. So. One of the driving forces as to why I created Pekani Lodge Health Institute was because I spent seven years at the university watching um, all of this external work going on within native populations. It really was very revealing that a lot of external researchers, you know, some of them very good intentioned, um, etc. But no matter how well-intentioned they were, if you boiled down the project, these little tiny amounts were coming into Indian country 
for maybe a six week internship or something and and they're floating along on a you know 1.4 million dollar grant or a 20 million dollar grant and you know what we saw here on the ground the people that were being researched and studied was you know very little um, benefit I think the a lot of the research as I was just beginning really um, matched a person's career as opposed to the need of the community and so that was a huge driver because all of these careers were being built external to here. They would come in because any, almost anything happening in Indian country is novel research. So it's, it's grounded for publication. You know, you can't uh, publish and publish and publish and publish about the same thing. You have to have novel work, novel research. You can't do a PhD on something that someone else has already done. It has to be novel work. And so um, in Indian country, there's, there's just not a lot of data uh, on any direction that you stand and throw a stone in, whether it's um, hantavirus, respiratory illness, the soil quality, you know, within the upper regions of the foothills, we don't have that data. So people, external researchers, can build their careers around coming and doing a project within Indian country, build their name for themselves, build their publications, and it costs them very little money. And I just kept watching these different researchers from these external institutions um, go about research in a way that wasn't as um, good for our community and our people as it could have been. And so one of those driving factors um, for creating PLHI was to do community-led, community-relevant, what's important to us. We, um, under the Agricultural Resource Management Plan, did this beautiful survey, this Okomi survey that they got the voices of, I think it was over 700 of our community members. What are our health priorities? What, you know, what do you see as our health priorities? What do you see as, you know, needs to happen with the land? What do you see needs to happen with the mountains? Like these are, all these voices came out, you know, that, that made um, the needs of the community the priority voice. It was their voices that was saying what the need was as opposed to an external researcher coming in and building their career and, and then leaving. They call it helicopter research. You know, you know your community, we live here, having tribal advisory councils, having people that, that, that guide us in our research and guide us in what our research priorities are. A uh, huge other piece was strengthening the, or doing whatever we could to strengthen the institutional review boards across tribal nations in Montana. So creating programs that, that um, were easily accessible from our isolated and remote tribal nations within the state or across the nation that, you know, kind of like an IRB and a toolkit and, a, you know, here's an IRB in a box that you can, you know, promote within your leadership, within your tribal nation so that you have more institutional protections within your people for equitable research. There was just, we weren't seeing any equity in all of these things, even um, people that, that were very, very well intentioned, they still felt it was okay to support themselves and some grad students and you know, for a couple, three years or four years, depending on the grant, and then come here and do a six-week internship for four students, but still take all of our information, you know, and it just was, it was just so inequitable in so many ways. And so one of those driving forces for, for why PLHI was created um, was that connection to uh, create our own research, uh, address our own needs, community-led, but to build our own people. It doesn't matter if you have no degree at all, or if you have a master's or a PhD or a bachelor's, you could still be the PI. So we, we wrote these um, seven principles for research in Indian country. We created a website that um, 
any institutional re review board could access to strengthen their own IRB. We um, did an entire um, digital catalog um, for Native researchers so that they would have better access to, like we found all the articles, we put them all in there so that they would have a little more streamlined process of, of being able to cite Native indigenous researchers across the land. The Maori really set the stage for this for us and, and we learned from the Maori breaking that trail and I'm just really grateful. But yeah, that's why community led because only community led can build our people. Um, if we have external researchers coming in building their own careers, um, it doesn't meet necessarily meet the, um, the needs of our people and it doesn't build our people. The ARMP, which Kim mentioned earlier, is the Blackfeet Agricultural Resource Management Plan, which is a community-driven roadmap for achieving holistic agricultural resource management that utilizes Blackfeet ways of knowing and being to take into account the health of and the relationship between the land, water, air, and Pecani people. Partners of the ARMP, such as PLHI, listen to voices from within the plan to guide their work. Kim was involved in the writing of the ARMP. After the plan was completed, Pecani Lodge Health Institute worked with Blackfeet community leaders to create a Pecani Wellbeing Index, which encompasses human health, agriculture and food sovereignty, cultural systems, social and educational lifeways, environmental stewardship, economics, and land tenure. The Pecani Wellbeing Index strengthens community data sovereignty and embodies an indigenous system view to better build community research agendas and action. It was completely holistic. So it had everything from what we think we need for our children, what we think we need for our, from our, for our lands, what we think we need for our health. It was just so many different opinions of well-being, how we could um, create, promote, and um, attach well-being as a, as a driver, as opposed to just economy, like just not just pay the electric bill, but well-being associated with paying the electric bills. So priorities were youth, youth-based programs, youth education, training. The priorities were like a crisis center, you know, for people in crisis instead of we have no place, we have no resources, you know. So there were, there were a lot of just um, various, you know, myriad of needs that we have, but it was from the voice of the people, so. The Blackfeet Climate Adaptation Plan is a plan that was assembled and created between 2016 and 2018 and is the result of a holistic Blackfeet planning process that honors traditional values and a collective community vision for the future, looking at all the interconnected impacts of a changing climate on the land, water, traditional resources, wildlife, and human health. The plan was a collaborative effort led by Gerald Wagner of the Blackfeet Environmental Office. Kim was also a key writer for the plan and speaks here to the partners that came together to form the plan and the way in which it was truly community informed. The um, Blackfeet Climate Change Adaptation Plan was really wonderful to work on and especially to work with um, all of our collaborators. It was a collaborative process um, between the Blackfeet Environmental Office. Let's see, it was funded through BIA, U.S. Bureau of Indian Affairs and Tribal Resilience Program, Great Northern Landscape Conservation Cooperative, and the National Indian Health Board. So it was nice that we were able to um, uh, fund it in that way. It was led by Gerald Wagner at the Blackfeet Environmental Office. 
And then there was a couple of folks from the Center of Large Landscape Conservation, and Molly Cross with the Wildlife Conservation Society, just wonderful to work with. And we had, of course, we had our local planning committee, which was, you know, so community-led. So we had the ARMP, the Natural Resource Conservation District. We had Health and Safety. We had the Blackfeet Nation Fish and Wildlife, Fire Management, Land Office, and Big Sky Watershed Corps, uh, volunteer. We had the Natural Resources Conservation Service, fire management, and then we had other folks, you know, with our leadership, our council at the time, um, Terry Tatsy. We had uh, Leah Whitford in the Economic Development and Planning Department. Oh, we had some folks from uh, CSKT, Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribes, and NatureLink Institute, Montana Department of Natural Resources, Environmental Protection Agency, and our wonderful interns. Um, so yeah, it was a very collaborative process and you know, through our leadership's blessing, we were able to, I think, do a pretty good job of pulling community needs and priorities into the actual creation of it. Someone got in contact with me to ask if I could help with, to yeah. help with the writing of it, to bring our voices to it, to bring the Xistucky, you know, the beaver, the, as we see the climate changing or to try to bring just a broader perspective to it and so I was very blessed to get to be a part of, of writing that so that was my initial piece of it but then um, it really became um, there were just wonderful community meetings and community-based priorities for it and what people were seeing as the land was changing and and I think we were just on the cusp of really having to um, to absorb the reality around us and, you know because when you live on the front weather changes all the time and so when you have weather patterns changing you know 300 times in a year and then you're trying to remember all those weather patterns um you know our, our people a long time ago had it right by watching the animals you know and, and so then we're trying to remember to watch the animals and to see how things are changing how the herds are changing and and then to see the weather and wait didn't that have water in it longer didn't this prairie pothole have water in it longer into the summer last year and you know just trying to really um keep with our busy lives, but also um, get connected back to the land and see how these things are changing and, and building in, you know, climate models, looking at the, the harsher storms, but the uh, heavier instances of drought. It, it really was um, a way to pull all the different programs, you know, from ag and environmental and uh, forestry and just the different land programs under uh, the tribe and ask them for their particular expertise and what they were seeing and and with these climate models what would you want to do in the future so creating that plan for what each what their voice was for each program and what they would like to see under a claim changing climate um, once that was completed the the work then begins right that it doesn't matter who's doing it whether it's BCC or PLHI the tribe or forestry or you know, why fish and wildlife, it doesn't matter who's doing it, but that they have this volume of work that they can look back on and say, okay, wait a second, we really do need to think about this bristlecone pine or this Clark's nutcracker, or, you know, as, as fires increase intensity, you know, we, we need to think about X, Y, and Z. And so I think it gave us our first formal uh, system with all these different pieces to it that we could rely back on and still keep um, that current reminder that wait a second things really are changing even though we have such a varied climate here on the front that it becomes confusing if things are changing or not or if this is just one year and then it's going to be better the next year or 
you know, were, were temperatures really that warm last year. But wait a second, it was 50 below for about four weeks. So it becomes, you know, confusing. But if you have this climate model or this adaptation plan, then you can begin dress, addressing the needs program by program. It was definitely community informed. Um, so people spoke, you know, they, we went around interviewing people and, and um, people spoke to the changes that they see on the land, living on the land, everyday people in ranch, you know, systems or who had been there, you know, since their great grandparents, like just to see those, to record those changes on the land and what can we do about this. And other people mentioned that now they have to go up higher to get berries at certain times of year where before they were, you know, it was like the plants are moving up into the mountains higher. Um, people were noticing something like that and then of course the wildlife and you know the big changes and then where did chronic wasting disease come from and how did that get to us and you know so contagious and wiping out we've always been reliant on our elk moose deer population you know we've always been able to feed ourselves in the background if we didn't want to be reliant on the store and um, that's changing so much with the changes in climate as well and so yeah, very much community-led. But I can tell you, for me, the most important part are interns. I got to have interns, got to talk to them about, you know, changing climate, got to teach them a little bit of chemistry and a little bit about, you know, what little I knew about the land, got to take them to different scattered sites and, like, up Chief Mountain and transfer smudges to them and show them how to, you know, find this omocotsis, the big medicine smudge, and, and to just go up in that prayer meadow and walk up on that shale and, like to me, that was the, the, the significantly huge, important piece um, that obviously isn't the whole plan, but it was certainly icing on the cake for me. They created their own website, you know, the intern's website. They, you know, started this blog, posted all of this wonderful, beautiful voices from their perspective, from the young adult perspective and, you know, within a changing climate because you know, what good does it do us or people like me, 60, 70, 80, 90, like, yeah, we can teach our younger ones, but they're the ones that have to lead the charge. And, and for them to take that on and to create this website and really be um, active, you know, participants in the creation of this was, um, to me, breathtaking. I think one of the biggest drivers for the plan, along with, you know, environmental, of course, and Gerald Wagner and such, you know, great leadership was Blackfeet Community College and the Native Science Field Center, um, Helen and Melissa, that just really um, created such a, a beautiful program that our young students, young adults um, can be a part of that really tie them back to the land and tie them to the climate change adaptation work. We hear now from Tyrell Fenner, a hydrologist who works with Pecani Lodge Health Institute primarily on climate adaptation and regenerative grazing programs, which both are derived from the Blackfeet Climate Adaptation Plan and the Agricultural Resource Management Plan. We met Tyrell near the Browning High School, where PLHI has built a series of snow fences in partnership with the school and the students here. This region is prone to extremely high winds, with gusts often exceeding 60 miles per hour. In the winter, snow is blown across the prairie for long distances, which can prevent snowmelt from replenishing soils and aquifers within Blackfeet Nation. As Tyrell will explain, these snow fences can block this drifting, causing snow to build up in a certain area to recharge moisture into the soils and groundwater. Yeah, this here is our willow snow fence. We've got a few different designs and uh, this one represents our traditional ecological knowledge. 
a lot of people know as TEK. So we've um, used uh, something I've seen performed, you know, by different um, different tribes. Uh, we're weaving the willow here. We're excited uh, to see uh, what kind of snow we can accumulate here. I mean, snow fences in particular historically have been used to by highway departments to keep snowdrifts from accumulating on the highway. They'll build them up wind about, you know, 100 yards or so. And uh, you'll see those all, all across the state. Uh, yeah, so we're in a very windy, snowy part of the state, part of the world. And um, so um, this is a unique opportunity for us to build these snow labs. And these snow fences are very valuable for our climate adaptation plan. Um, in this part of the world, things are getting drier and uh, so we've been experiencing a drought here and so these snow fences are going to trap that moisture. They, um, anything out on the prairie is going to stop, stop the snow from blowing by and um, so these are going to um, cause uh, snow drifts to build in front of and behind them. And um, so the moisture that it traps is going to sit and infiltrate into the soil and um, throughout the winter there's these thaw and freeze cycles and the snowdrift will actually look like it's shrinking and going away and uh, so that water is going straight down into the soil and it's good for uh, soil moisture and um, we can look at different snow fences across the state and see that there's obvious greener areas of pasture uh, be on these snow fences downwind of them and uh, so we can we can do that here in on wetlands and that's good for um, you know biodiversity, wildlife habitat, as well as uh, producers um, that rely on these wetlands to uh, for their cattle to have a water source. Um, I've heard stories about uh, people that um, uh, bring their cattle cross country to different pastures, and um, along the way they um, rely on some of these watering holes, and um, some of them are having to truck their cows now that these uh, during this drought so we can actually put in some snow fences around them and keep that uh, water available later in the season and um, that's just how we're adapting to climate change here in Blackfeet country and and uh, drought resiliency is uh, you know what a lot of people are calling it. Each of these sites we have a uh, control as well as um, the different uh, types of snow fences so we're making comparisons between our tribal ecological knowledge model here, our TEK uh, willow snow fence, compared to wooden slat, um, plastic netting, there's Wyoming snow fences. And uh, we also have a control where there's no snow fence and we're going to measure the soil moisture there and compare it to the sites where the snow fences are. And we'll be able to tell uh, what kind of differences and that's just one, one small part of uh, what we can look at here. We've partnered with the Browning High School here and um, installed these three snow fences. There's a few agriculture classes and FFA students that come out and help. Uh, classes are about 10 to 15 students and they're all uh, pretty excited to get out here and get their hands dirty from um, gathering willow, assemb uh, weaving willow, um, just assembling the frames and everything, uh, pounding these stakes and posts. There's a lot that goes into these and and uh, so yeah we're uh, really happy to have that partnership and of course the students um, are um, getting some rewarding work out of the out of the whole deal they're learning about pound and post and just um, our climate adaptation plan and different different um, jobs that are available in this community things that they could enter into the workforce out of high school or 
different things they might want to go to school for. Here is Jimmy Champ, the teacher at Browning High School who works in partnership with PLHI and the Snowfence Project. Jimmy is a vocational education and horticulture teacher at Browning High School. We're working on bringing back the outdoor space and getting the grass to grow better. Building the wind fences with Pecani Lodge Health Institute has really helped us to store some of the water so that in the future we can have some flower gardens, vegetable gardens out there with the hopes that eventually we'll be able to feed our school with the gardens that we built, we grow outside. When we started going outside, they realized that there's a huge diverse plant culture out there. And by having them involved in the building of the snow fence and the identification of the plants and the flora and fauna out there, it's really opened their eyes to what we have on our reservation. Having the kids out there building, a lot of them had never used a drill bit or an electric drill, never pounded a post, never pounded a nail. And by having them out there, they really have ownership out that, out, about that. And when they drive by in the evenings, they tell their folks, hey, I helped build that. And it's really been an empowering thing for them to see something they built outside of the school. They'll know that they had a part in that. My main focus, my main goal for this class is that when they walk out of these four walls of this school building, that they have a skill that they can do, whether it be gardening, planting, farming, working with animals, so that if they choose not to go on to higher education, if they would rather go right into the workforce or have their own farms or ranches and just hit the ground running. So I've been a teacher for 20 years. Um, this is probably the most exciting year of my life. This is my first year as an egg teacher and seeing there when it finally clicks, when they finally like, whoa, I used the drill gun or when we go outside and have horses or we're identifying plants. For me as a teacher, it's probably the most heartwarming thing like, holy smokes, I actually did it. I've made an impact on these kids' lives that I hope that they carry on for the rest of their lives. I asked Jimmy about the value in the school partnering with entities outside of the school, such as PLHI. Working with people outside of the school building is so important to our classes, so important to our culture of students because they need to know that just being in the school being is not just where their life is. It's going to branch out to all these different, to the IHS, to Bakani Lodge Health Institute, to the Blackfeet Tribe, to BCC, and having all of these, having people come in and help us out and talk to us, explain things, to us, it makes them more aware of their surrounding and to job opportunities or lifelong learning opportunities that they might have once they're out of this classroom. Now back to Tyrell, speaking about a partnership with the Blackfeet Community College. Yeah, at uh, Blackfeet Community College, we've got a series of snow fences out there and they're actually directly recharging an old wetland. We're in about a five or six year drought and uh, it sounds like it's been getting drier earlier and earlier and earlier each um, summer. So we're going to see um, using um, Google Earth imagery, uh, satellite imagery and make comparisons and see if we can pin down these old dates that um, they've gone dry and see if we can extend that for the for the bird and the herd. Uh, they say what's good for the bird is good for the herd and um, all the wildlife that uh, uses these wetlands as well as the grazing cattle. There might not be cows on that wetland in the college pastures, but they're talking about putting some um, cattle and some bison in and 
doing a comparison there. So there's uh, there's lots of big things going down on the other side of town on the BCC pastures. It's actually the biggest college acreage-wise in the country, biggest tribal college that is acreage-wise. So there's a lot of land to work with. There's a beaver mimicry project already over there and lots of different things going on. Yeah, so we're testing out these different types of snow fences and see what would be feasible for ranchers to um, you know, deploy themselves, but we do actually provide materials and we'll do some installs, you know, usually provided that we can do some sampling and testing on the soil. We're definitely open to help people implement uh, these practices uh, however possible. In an effort to be good stewards of biosystems and the land, Pecani Lodge Health Institute is educating themselves and community members on the most current regenerative grazing practices and providing support for producers who want to apply these practices. These grazing practices will better enable producers to supply the multi-species processing plant that is underway within Blackfeet Nation. Tyrell, who works with the Regenerative Grazing Program, speaks here about the work. I um, work with the Regenerative Grazing Program in the summertime and do a lot of outreach for different events. Um, we've brought in different speakers and hosted them and gone to their ranches and invited community members to join us and see what kind of um, results they're seeing. And some pastures are seeing five, six hundred percent increase in forage. Uh, you know, so six, seven times as much forage, you can increase your carrying capacity, improving soil health, wildlife habitat, um, health of your animals. It's kind of a win, 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 and, and people are starting to see that more and more. Jimmy Champ is not only a teacher, but a rancher herself and PLHI works with her on her operation to incorporate grazing techniques to benefit the soils and health of the grasses. I've been working with Pakani Lodge Health Institute for about two years. Uh, we started working with them on some regenerative grazing projects on my home ranch. We've been able to bring back some pastures. We've been able to figure out what the ranch needs to do to get more feed for our cattle, which will eventually save us money and impact our ranch in a really positive way. Tyrell shares how not only was the Blackfeet Climate Adaptation Plan, or BCAP, a community-informed process, but that involvement continues through the climate work of PLHI as well as the BCAP itself, as it is seen as a living document and community involvement continues to be integrated. Pecani Lodge Health Institute and um, other entities involved in the Blackfeet uh, climate Adaptation Plan have uh, been hosting meetings and uh, doing uh, surveys and different outreach to figure out uh, what the needs are of the community. So there's been a lot of community engagement along the way and um, now that uh, these plans have been implemented we're continuing to do so, uh, keeping the community involved, uh, having uh, uh, town halls where uh, everybody's in, you know, welcome to come and uh, we're just trying to keep the community involved as much as we can along the way. We now go back to Kim Paul and ask her if she has any final words or messages for the people of the Blackfeet Nation. The message that I would have is just gratefulness, that we're so blessed to be so well connected to each other, to our grandparents, to our grandparents before us, and um, to that path that they you know, broke through for us, living through disease and decimation and annihilation and assimilation. And, you know, the, the message to our community is, um, you know, we know we're still here and uh, we know how to solve our own problems. And, and just that it's, I just have a grateful heart for being able to 
do what I pray is creator's work within uh, creator's beautiful landscape amongst creator's beautiful people and trying to be the best steward of, of whatever gifts he gives us, you know, and trying to be the best little uh, tool in the toolbox that I can be for the blessings that he's given. Who knew that, you know, like going to college. Like I remember my uncle saying, you need to go to college. And I'd be like, that's, it, it was just like, it was so far out there. It was like, he was saying, my girl, you need to fly to the moon. <laughs> it was just, just a different world, right? It wasn't, it wasn't possible. My message to our community is, um, we have the best college in the world at Blackfeet Community College. We have this, this vibrant, alive stepping stone that um, it changes your life. You know, you're accepted for who you are and for what level of understanding you have. And, and it just changes your life. Like you have the opportunity to, to take organic chemistry and physics and all these biologies and get all these credits out of the way before you go that next step to the university. And if there's any way that you can swing it, Childcare, you know, all that stuff is so hard. Transportation is so hard. Groceries are so hard. Electric is so hard, you know, but if there's any way you can swing it, um, it really does change your life if you're able to keep going. And we're going to work hard to try to create some programs that, that bring the money back into the community, create those jobs and um, have jobs to come home to when you, you know, after you make that sacrifice, because it's a huge sacrifice. I was away from my father for the last years of his life. I was away from my grandma, you know, for the last year of her life. I just got to come home here and there. And, you know, you make a huge sacrifice to go away and go to school. And so I'm not saying education is the end all, but it certainly has worked for PLHI to be able to build that framework. Um, because without those silly letters behind your name, like we, I had to walk in that world and, and do what that world demanded so that we could do what we're doing here today, you know, and, um, sometimes you just got to make those sacrifices. When I look at someone who uh, gets it, you know, and wants to be a part of these, this fulfilling work and still get paid for it and, you know, really be a part of learning that piece of who we are, um, it makes all those sacrifices worth it. <laughs> we finished our conversation with Kim by asking her if there are any messages she wants to put out to folks or entities outside of the Blackfeet community on things that she sees make for good partnerships or ways to create more equitable spaces in their work. We're very selective about who we work with, and, and um, we're so grateful to have had such great partners, you know, external folks at MSU, UM, um, just uh, NatureLink, all of these different nonprofits, and oh my gosh, the wonderful people at um, the Foundation for Food and Agricultural Research and Native American Ag Fund, and. First Nations Development Institute, um, you know, there's just so many of these external collaborators that we work with that actually are Native themselves. And so we, um, you know, try to prioritize those linkages because we have so much to learn. And we have so much to learn from other Indigenous peoples, but we also have so much to learn from um, each other, from people that, you know, are Native at heart, but maybe weren't blessed to get to be born Native, and we just have so many good partnerships. The message, I think, from us is that, you know, come join us in this good work. We can help each other with, with doing good things across the state, across the nation, translationally across the globe. I think that, um, that as long as work is done in a good and respectful way and the partnerships are equitable, I think that, that partnerships are valuable. And we, in many of our projects, define not only the percentage 
of uh, native collaborations as well as the measured amount of traditional knowledges versus Western science. But when you meld both of those, you know, it's like braiding sweetgrass, right? You've got this traditional way, you've got this Western science, and then you have the people in the middle, and it just makes it so much stronger. You know, we, we go back to that old saying, why reinvent the wheel? Well, why not build that wheel out with Western science and traditional, you know, knowledge, traditional science? We are the first scientists on the land. We are the first that, you know, watch the weather, the weather, the meteorologist, the geologist. We are the first, you know, of, of just about any ologist that you could imagine. We are the first, you know, across this land. And, and we might speak about it differently and we might write about it differently or share about it differently, but, but we were. And, and so we have that capacity to be so now. And yeah, partnerships are very important. Our leadership is very important, you know, to have our strong leadership and be partners with them, working with them in, in everything that we do, being very respectful of that um, tribal uh, system that they have priority for any programs or projects or um, anything that the work that we do that it augments the good work of so many people in this community that they've been doing for decades and decades and decades. We're just new. We're just getting going. You know, we would never take away from that, that beautiful trail that's already been broken by them and all the good work that they do every day. And so we're really grateful to have these strong partnerships with, within and without. Here, Kim speaks to funding challenges and messages that she wants to share with entities that support community and environmental work on the ground. It's really important to note that every funding mechanism has different requirements. And some of the requirements are really hard to meet um, under, say, federal guidelines who require, you know, a match um, where, wherein we're doing really good work and we're doing really important work, but it doesn't mean that we have a million dollars in excess uh, capital lying around that we can, you know, use for a match so that we can um, uh, create a training center that we really want to create because we can create, you know, these valuable careers, these relevant careers, you know, this exceptional workforce within you know, our community, but we can't do it because we don't meet the matching uh, requirements within some of these, you know, federal larger grants. And we still want to do the really good work, but we're not eligible because um, they have different ways that they set up these matching percentages um, that either stem from the population or like there's these sometimes challenging uh, stipulations to some of these larger federal grants. I think other things are um, there's always that old adage about trying to fit a square peg into a round hole, et cetera. And I think we've been very blessed by the funders who have uh, supported our work. You know, within some funding mechanisms, I think there's just challenges for Native communities that don't maybe value uh, Indigenous methodology. We want evidence-based. Well, um, you know, we're still standing in that hole that's 100 yards from that fence that other ethnicities are looking over because we're 100 years behind in education. I mean, I'm the first STEM PhD female, <laughs> and I'm 62, you know, like that's ridiculous, right? You know, because we're so isolated, we don't have the money to go, we don't have the money for rent or gas to drive across the street, much less get, you know, 400 miles to a university and support our family at home and do the things that need to be done. So we, we're working hard at it. I see this next generation coming up and getting further and further than, you know, any of us ever got. But, 
you know, when there's PhD requirements for certain research that somebody at an MS or a bachelor's level could do the same thing. Um, it makes it really hard for us to have equitable partnerships because we don't have those, as many of those PhDs in Indian country. You know, I think the evidence-based methodology within bigger systems, um, you know, I could think of the bigger funding health systems that, you know, require X, Y, Z, that we don't actually have that framework in place yet in Indian country. And I think that to have more reviewers, more native reviewers for these funding um, opportunities. We really need more native reviewers. We don't have a lot of people that write grants within our communities and if they want to get money into Indian country to really make a difference within some very dire or acute community needs and where they can really have huge impact, um, I think sometimes the application process has to adjust to the ethnicity, to the isolation, to the community where things really look a lot differently. Thank you so much to Kim Paul for speaking with Lalani and I and sharing your time and insight. You can find out more about Pekani Lodge Health Institute at pekanilodge.org. That's P-I-I-K-A-N-I-L-O-D-G-E dot org. You can also follow them on Facebook and Instagram for information and announcements. You can find this link as well as links to the Blackfeet Climate Adaptation Plan and the Blackfeet Agriculture Resource Management Plan in this episode's show notes. This episode was co-produced by Leilani Upham of Iron Shield Creative, which fosters the natural world and human connection through indigenous storytelling in Montana. Find out more at ironshieldcreative.com and they're also on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you to Peyton Butler for editing assistance on this episode. Be sure to check out the other four podcast episodes featuring voices from the Blackfeet Nation, as well as the Life in the Land film episode featuring these perspectives. You can find the entirety of the Life in the Land project at lifeintheland.org with films and podcasts from four regions of Montana. Please reach out if you'd like to screen any of the films for free at your own workshop or gathering. Thank you all so much for listening. This episode was recorded on the homelands of the Amskapi Pekani Blackfeet Nation, who interacted with and stewarded these lands for thousands of years. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Stories for Action and learn about all of our work at storiesforaction.org. You can browse inspiring stories from others or submit your own for us to share. Thank you all for listening and for being a part of our community, where our mission is to use the power of storytelling to share human connection and advance a thriving planet for all. The entirety of the Life in the Land project is made possible completely through donation support We'd like to thank the following generous supporters, Crocus Foundation, Bioregions International Fund, Montana Forest Collaboration Network, the Jim Scott Family, Marina Weatherly, Montana DEQ's Abandoned Minelands Program, Montana Conservation Corps, Berg Conservancy of the Rockies, Winnet Aces, the Milton Ranch, Northern Great Plains Joint Venture, Montana Land Reliance, Joan and Cliff Montaigne, and additional support from Heart of the Rockies, Montana Watershed Coordination Council, Rancher Stewardship Alliance, Lower Clark Park Watershed Group, Big Hole Watershed Committee, Bill Long and Billy Miller, Gary Wooded, Arthur Lubis, Rodney Fry, Chris Boyer, Gary Burnett, Daniel Beal and Julia Becker, Tom Palmer, Chris King, the Mannix Brothers Ranch, Ann Schrader, and a special thank you to the Common Ground Project. You can support future Life in the Land work with a tax-deductible contribution at lifeintheland.org.